we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. Hi, I'm Ben Kantak and you're listening to Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. My guest today is Dwayne Hamaker. Dwayne is an astronomer and associate professor at the University of Melbourne who has a specific interest in cultural astronomy and indigenous sciences in general. His new book, The First Astronomers, How Indigenous Elders Read the Stars, offers a systemic overview of traditional First Nations knowledge of the stars. On this episode, we talk about the history and value of cultural astronomy, as well as the ongoing debate and attempts to discredit Indigenous science and knowledge. I'm thrilled to be talking to Dwayne today on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome, Dwayne. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm very excited to talk to you about uh, your your book, your new book that was just released beginning of the month, The First Astronomers. We will talk all about that. But first and foremost, I'm fascinated by your journey, how you ended up in Australia as a kid from Missouri. Let's start out at the beginning. How What sparked your interest in astronomy in the first place back in the States? Hard to figure out the, the the exact pinpoint where I became fascinated with the stars, but I was always into astronomy since I was as young as I could remember. I think when when the when the film ET came out in 1982, I was four years old, and that was like my favorite film of all time. You know, so it was the whole space thing was was quite huge, and I just always kept the passion for that over the years. And I think I was going through some of my old stuff my mother had kept from when I was a kid. When I went back to the States several years ago, and uh, there was like this teacher evaluation from when I was in kindergarten, and it said, uh, future scientist, probably an astronomer or a paleontologist. And I was like, oh, I was, I was pretty good. You know, I thought, <laughs> paleontology. I thought, well, if I could dig up dinosaurs on Mars, but it didn't, didn't quite work out that way, you know, but uh, it's like, well, I, I got to pick one. So I love the idea of, of doing astronomy, and, and it, it was so weird because I, I grew up in a really rural area. Yeah. Like, uh, the town that I lived in was called Guthrie. And I think, I don't know how many people were in there, 50 maybe, something like that. I don't wow. know. Wow. It wasn't very big. Um, it was more of a township that stretched out across a county than, than like a centralized town. But I lived in this little village area. And the town that I went to school in, New Bloomfield, was about population of 500 people. And I went kindergarten through through year 12 in the same school. I think my graduating class was 29 or 30 people. Um, so the idea of like going off to university to study astronomy, like, was it really on the cards? I asked my teachers or my you know guidance counselor, like, what should I study? So she pulls out a thing and finds like Berkeley and Princeton. And the chances of, you know, some kid growing up in New Bloomfield going to Berkeley or Princeton did not seem very realistic. So I asked my biology teacher in high school, um, Elizabeth Sanning is her name, and she recommended, you know, 
while I could study you know, physics. And I went off to this university and, and the first year astronomy course was taught in an earth science department that I asked a professor, I was like, well, do I study earth science or do I study physics? He's like, well, if you want to study planets, study earth science. If you want to study everything else, study physics. So that was a tricky one, but I went with the physics option. But yeah, it was just one of those things growing up, I don't, you know, growing up out in the country and being able to, to see the stars, what I thought were pretty clearly until I moved here and got a real view of the stars. You know, just one of those things that I, a passion I have held my whole life. But I think then you're touching on a very important point there, the issue of light pollution and the night skies. That's a big issue. We, we talked about this with other guests as well on this podcast. Um, that light pollution is such a big topic that is completely underestimated because there's this kind of disconnect. So I feel in a way, compared to growing up in, like, like myself, I grew up in Central Europe, which is obviously like an absolute nightmare in terms of light pollution. Our night sky feels like we have 50 stars left in the sky and that's only on a lucky night. Being from mid-Missouri, compared to, I mean, the night skies here are amazing, but you must have been a little bit more present or you must have been a little bit more aware of it than some cities like a kid. Absolutely. And, and the great thing was I could go outside and, and get pretty dark views of the sky because we lived around, we were surrounded by farmland, you know, and there, there were towns around, but they were small. So we didn't have major cities. And the nearest major city was, you know, almost two hours away in another direction, Kansas City or St. Louis um you know smaller regional cities but it was a very beautiful part of the sky and i used to just sit outside at night i've always been a night owl my whole life which i think ties into being an astronomer yeah those two, those two work very well together um just sitting outside and, and looking up at the stars and you know asking all the big questions and just wondering how amazing it would be to be able to do that as, as a career like how how could you do something like that i didn't know any astronomers um i didn't know anybody who was an astronomer it, it just seemed like one of those distant dreams, but I thought, well, I can do that or I can, you know, do stuff that I'm not happy with. So the obvious choice for me was, was pretty clear. But yeah, it was the first time I actually saw proper dark skies, I was in Wyoming. I was 17 and we took a family trip up to Yellowstone and we drove through Wyoming and we were in this valley in the mountains and the Rockies. And I just remember waking up in the middle of the night. I, the funny thing is, it was, it was one of the best and worst nights of my life because I had this horrible, horrible migraine because we were up in the mountains. I had never been exposed to that kind of climate before. Wow. And for whatever reason, the, the pressure differential was just giving me an absolute migraine. And I remember waking up and trying to take some, some painkillers and just looking up and just being blown away. While I've got this migraine, I'm looking up and just dumbfounded by how amazingly dark the skies were out there it was really yeah. stunning do you think that that also helped sparking your interest in putting yourselves in the shoes of um you know of first nation people like that you know didn't have any light pollution like that connect to the sky do you think that has something to do with that or i don't know do, do you think there's like a connection there as well for you i never thought about that at the time and for me being able to see the stars had a massive influence on my interest in astronomy. And I've met plenty of people who grew up in cities or really dense urban areas who couldn't see the stars. And I, I, I found a very common theme that for those individuals, it tended to be the case they got interested in astronomy through documentaries or through the physics side of things, like they would see Hubble Space Telescope images, but not necessarily going outside and having that personal connection to the stars. Whereas, not exclusively, but a lot of the people that I met 
who said that they grew up with that interest were in places where they could actually go out and see the stars. Maybe they, maybe their grandparents had a, a farm or something like that. Anyway, they could go out and see the real beautiful, you know, canopy of stars without it being on paper or on a TV set or something. And when you when you learn about the ways that humans have always connected with the stars, I mean, they are all-encompassing as a knowledge system themselves. They are how we give meaning to the world, how we understand our place in the world. If we want to know how things are happening on the land, we have to look at the stars. And because most human societies through human history have always used systems of morality rather than written systems, um, we use the stars as a memory aid, as a memory device, as a memory space. So we we put our we you know we put these ideas in the stars as markers, and that's what the elders always teach: how to um, use the stars as a map and as a textbook. So I think for me, growing up and having a view of those stars was a massive influence. Otherwise, my attention probably would have gone downward more, and I probably would have ended up as a paleontologist, taking <laughs> <laughs> out stuff. Um... The whole discipline discipline of astronomy has come a very long way. Um, I mean, even if you go back and, I don't know, at school, I, I can't recall hearing about anything earlier than, let's say, you know, Greek societies or Babylonian societies and their interest in, in the stars and in astronomy. Astronomy has gone through, through such a big shift and change. I mean, it's basically just studying physics these days. Could you explain to our listeners what is astronomy these days and what did it used to be? These days, astronomy and astrophysics are basically synonymous. They're used interchangeably, although I would you know, certainly argue, as would most colleagues, that astronomy is a bit broader. So astrophysics is completely within astronomy, but not all astronomy is within astrophysics. But for the most part, you know, that's, it's understanding everything outside the Earth's atmosphere. That's basically what it is, the science of all of that. So whether it's our solar system, which tends to be a bit more dominated by Earth and planetary sciences, the geosciences, um, or even the local space environment, um, out to everything else beyond, which is definitely the realm of astrophysics. That's more of a modern situation with that. And you, you find interdisciplinary links between sciences, like astrobiology, so the search for you know, life in the universe, uh, not to be confused with like, you know, the ufologists and whatever else trying to find, you know, <laughs> yeah. the big headed aliens probing people in the middle of the night sort of thing. Um, but they're looking at the, you know, how common is life in the universe? How did we get here? How did, you know, all those, all those great questions. Big questions. Yeah. And of yeah. course, the, the, the area that I'm working in looks in, in the context of astronomy with respect to humans, so society, culture, history, heritage, all those kinds of things. Now, if you go back very far, more than a few hundred years, astronomy, which is the science of everything in the cosmos, and astrology, which tries to find uh, human meanings in the stars, were indistinguishable from each other. You go back in ancient times, they, they, they were the same thing. And it was hard, it could be a challenge at times to separate the scientific elements of that from the non-scientific elements of that. Today, we've, you know, we've got pretty set boundaries around all this stuff. Back then, you didn't have that. So astrolog astrologers were actually making careful observations of the stars, their positions, uh, a lot of astrometry, and, and you know, what we would consider those aspects today to definitely be science. But then they were using that to sort of figure out, well, what are good and bad omens? And 
you know, what are good and bad days and predicting things of that nature, you know, giving that sort of humanistic meaning behind it. Which is interesting for the work that I'm doing because we're understanding and are trying to understand astronomy from a human perspective. Therefore, astrology, among many other things, would fall into that. That there's a difference between understanding the history of astrology and like being a practicing astrologer. You know, it's it's a, it's a weird area, um, which can be quite tricky to explain to people without going into all the gory detail. <laughs> I'm not sitting there reading people horoscopes, but you kind of have to learn a little bit about it if you're going to work in that space because there's a lot yeah. of ancient systems of knowledge in some cultures of the world and the ancient temples they built and things had to do with those two worlds but basically you know astronomy it's hard to figure out where it first started i mean it seems that humans as far back as we can go have tried to understand the world around us which includes the stars and i mean i have no idea there's examples of star traditions that go back over ten thousand years people have been around for a lot longer than that you know, Western science sort of traces it back to ancient Sumer and that breadbasket of what they call breadbasket of civilization. You get written languages and city-states and it sort of evolves and changes and then it gets adapted by the Akkadians and the Babylonians and then later the Greeks and Romans. It goes through this whole history of astronomy, but really about the, the enlightenment and the scientific revolution is where those areas started splitting off. Because even some of the people we think are the great astronomers were actually practicing astrologers as well, whether they wanted to or not. You know, maybe they thought one is a day job and one is a hobby. You know, but you know that's that's kind of how it split off in the last few hundred years to become two very distinct areas. And I think for the questions that astrophysicists and astronomers are trying to ask, that makes sense. You know, you you can't have supernatural causation, for example. You can't say. Why does the star work this way? Oh, because the gods made it that way. That, that's not the kind of yeah. answer you're, that's going to be suitable for the questions you're trying to ask. But then there are other questions you can ask in a different social context. And while I'm certainly not you know, a practicer, practitioner or follower of astrology, people are going to try to find meaning in this stuff in their own lives. And I don't think it's really my place to give them too much of a, a hard time for that. But, you know, that's... It's not necessarily what I'm doing, but it. The reason I'm kind of mentioning a little bit more about this astrology thing because it, it, it there's a, it's a double-edged sword these days. There's a lot of information hidden in all these stories, right? And I feel like that's probably the the issue for for a lot of people that they disregard this this oral history and all these stories and and you know where where science bleeds into stories and you can extract it from that. And I feel maybe that's that's the issue, isn't it? That a lot of people to this day. Um, they don't think of First Nations knowledge as very scientific in general. I mean, wh why do you think that that a, a lot of people are still fighting this idea that there's so much more within oral traditions that you can extract and learn amazing things from? It's a really good question, because one of the things I've learned from the elders is that, you know, the knowledge systems, the oral traditions have a lot of meetings, and a lot of that goes well beyond my scope um by by quite a distance but one layer of that is that these traditions these stories and the songs and the dances and everything that goes with that is the medium or the media through which this knowledge is passed on orally you know today we teach in universities we've got textbooks right i've got a bunch of them sitting next to me on my desk you it's all about the written word and it's yeah. usually lists of boring dry fat you know you got to sort of sort through 
sometimes I'll clumsily attempt to put a narrative around it, but it can be quite dry. But when you're trying to teach this stuff orally, it's not just the science, it's also the social rules and the laws and the spirituality and identity and all those things are weaved into it. But it's gotta be an interesting story. If you're gonna have it in your memory, you can't just list a long series of facts. You've gotta have a way of encoding that into something that's gonna be memorable. And that's where you can get, you know, humans and ancestors morphing into animals and going into the sky and superhuman feats of strength and sex and violence and love and reward and you know, all these kinds of things. And mostly because it's memorable. That's one of the main things about it. Um, it's this really good, effective way of encoding that to memory. And what we see today is people have been uh, trained in a Western scientific way to such a degree where anything like that is considered not science or pseudoscience. And again, for what Western science is trying to ask, I mean, that's fair enough. I mean, I, you know, I qualify this by saying when I started doing my PhD on indigenous astronomy, I co-founded a skeptic society. You know, I was very much in this camp. Yeah. It's not that I'm not necessarily in that camp. It's just that I've seen it in a very different way over the last you know, 10 to 15 years. But today what happens is those who don't want to believe this because there's this, this, this hints of cultural superiority yeah. uh, which you find in the West, which sometimes I find really ironic because the people who push these sort of European superiority ideas and some of it slightly veiled, some of it out in the open sort of white supremacist views of you know how Europeans have figured all this stuff out and, and Europeans were so much better at this and they really emphasize this northern European view they will often quote the Greeks and the Romans and, and things of that nature and I'm like you do realize the Greeks literally referred to the Ger Germanic tribes as barbarians right <laughs> like we were considered the primitive barbarian you know yeah, so yeah. trying to co-op them and saying oh but look what Europe did look what the Greeks did the, the, the Greeks didn't have the best views of you if you recall your history, you know, yeah, yeah. Roman expansion through Gaul. Yeah, anyway. So what happens nowadays is there's a lot of people who, when this stuff comes up, they just say, oh, it's just astrology. And as soon as they say astrology, it's dismissive. You could ignore it. It's the same as trying to read a horoscope to figure out your love life or your lotto numbers or something. Yeah. And because of that, you know, we, we get it in a weird way from all different sides of the spectrum because we get people on one side of the spectrum who want to dismiss it as mythology and think that Aboriginal, you know, Indigenous people didn't have any science. This is ridiculous. There was an article in a magazine today trying to tear my book apart when the guy who, who was talking about it literally didn't read anything except the cover. That's all he read. It's obvious that's all he read. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and then from the other end of the spectrum, there's this idea that um, there is a view that the science is, you know, certainly not the end all be all. In some cases, science is almost a bad word in some parts, in many parts of academia these days. And the idea of saying that these traditions were scientific is trying to confine it into a Western way of thinking. I'm like, no, no, no. Science is a human endeavor. It's like art. It's like music. It's about understanding the world around us. Not all different forms of science are the same. They don't do everything in the same way, even in Western science. The way an astrophysicist does research, the way a psychologist does research, the way an archaeologist, the way a field biologist or a mathematician, you know, they don't all do science in the same way. There's a general set of guidelines around that. But, um, you know, they're all 
valid in their own right, equally valid, but they're asking different questions and looking at things in different ways. And that's what I find is the important thing to remember that they're not trying. I don't think it should be a battle over who's better or worse. Um, it's just understanding there are different ways of asking questions and trying to understand the world around us and they can benefit each other, even if you don't necessarily agree with it. Maybe it's also that people people think, oh, you know what, indigenous culture, star knowledge wasn't it was just more like a pastime leisure activity or something. I mean, it was it was way more than that. It was basically about survival of people and survival of, of culture, right? It was centered to almost everything. And the reason I say that is every single community that I've worked with, every elder that I've worked with, or four, I should say, that I've worked for, anywhere in the world, all of them say the same thing. Everything on the land is reflected in the sky. If you want to know how anything works on the land, you have to look to the stars because they will tell you. It's about understanding the, as they often say, reading the stars, which is why I titled the book, The First Astronomers, How Indigenous Elders Read the Stars. Yeah. Reading the stars is the scientific process that is knowing how to observe all the changes, no matter how subtle or long-term, in the positions and properties of celestial objects to understand how things work on the land. Now, they can have a practical purpose, navigation, calendars, predicting uh, seasonal change, forecasting weather, understanding the behavior of plants and animals. It can have a social context. It can be informing traditional law, behaviors, you know, social expectations, marriage classes, kinship, all that kind of stuff. And of course, all the stuff on identity and spirituality that are connected to the stars. That's, that's certainly beyond my scope, but all of that is there. So it's central to everything. And that's why this idea of light pollution sort of erasing the sky isn't just taking away, you know, our ability to see the stars and be like, ooh, isn't that pretty? It's literally like wiping textbooks. It's like yeah. taking white out and just covering all the textbooks up. All the source knowledge and information you have is in the sky. And the stars are, you know, are fixed, you know, I mean, not over long periods of time. I mean, yes, there's precession, nutation, stellar proper motion, all that kind of things that, you know, cause changes over long periods of time. But on a normal year by year basis, the stars are fixed, they're predictable, and we can understand how they work. And we can predict long into the future what's going to happen and how they work. So they're, they're really a sense of security in the sky, uh, in the world around us. So it's so important that we understand and recognize that because this casual dismissal of, of the stars as something that we don't need is destroying our personal connection to it. It's destroying our ability to understand our place in the universe. And with, with these ancient cultures that, that are living and thriving today that have been around for so long, you're literally just wiping that off. And that's another one of the reasons why I think some people may feel resistance to acknowledging these deep intellectual accomplishments and complex systems of knowledge. The whole idea when, when the Europeans in, invaded and colonized Australia was, oh, these people didn't own land, they didn't really know anything, they're sort of aimlessly wandering around. Um, when you recognize that they did own the land, you know, in, in their sense of that, and they they weren't just wandering around aimlessly and they did have complex systems of knowledge, you know, this idea of dehumanizing and eradicating, all of a sudden you just can't do that anymore, you know, and people yeah. don't like that, especially when they've been holding up that narrative for so long. 
So, you know, it's, it's really kind of gross, <laughs> not yeah. kind of gross, it's extremely gross that those things are still happening in this day and age. But I, th I think that's definitely one of the contributing factors why so many people are, are just resistant to it. And that's also why I feel your book, uh, The First Astronomers, is so important. I want to talk to you about the process um, of this project, of the book. Um, you collaborated with six Indigenous elders from mainland Australia and the Torres Strait on, on this project. How, how did you get in contact and what was the process like leading up to this project? Well, funnily enough, initially I had a whole lot more elders. Um, as it turned out, the reason there are six listed on the cover of the book is because that was a limit to the number of co-authors that were that were uh, allowed by a trade book of their size. You know, in the way libraries index index books, you know, it, it it actually wasn't me just saying, well, these are the six elders that I'm going to pick for an arbitrary reason, or they were the only ones. There were a whole bunch of them, but it was it's the publishing system, and you know, nothing against a publisher. There's no, no, no. Limits to how they do this sort of stuff. I. I think a library indexing 50 authors for a book would be a bit tricky, even though that's pretty commonplace in the in literature. I was just about to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 250 authors. I've, I've seen papers in like, especially these big uh, surveys in nature and science, where the paper's like 20 pages, but like 18 pages of the authors and their affiliations. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when it comes to this work, you know, I, I did my PhD at Macquarie University on on Aboriginal astronomy. And I met a couple of elders who were really great at um, sort of mentoring me through the process. And when I finished, I got a, a job at the University of New South Wales with Professor Martin Nakata. And then that's when we decided to do a project working directly with the elders. Because during my PhD, because of all the restrictions and the, the time crunch yeah. of doing a PhD and all those factors, I didn't actually do what they call ethnography. I didn't actually go out and interview elders. It was all based on archival historical research and then archaeological research. And this was the first time I could actually go out and even though I taught, spoken to elders, you know, we didn't have, we didn't go through that formal process where it wasn't part of my actual degree. But yeah. when I started working at UNSW, I got a, a DECRA fellowship from the ARC. And, and then we decided to put that in on the Torres Strait. And then, you know, Professor Nocta, who, who is a Torres Strait Islander, he took me up there. We sat with the elders and explained what we could do, and they were keen um, because, as they say, you know, they've got a lot of living knowledge, but over time, it's starting to fade a bit because, you know, the schools there only go to year six on most of the islands, so the students have to go to either Thursday Island or the mainland, and there aren't a whole lot of economic opportunities to come back to the islands. So usually, you know, when, when students hit, I don't know, around the age of 12, I'm guessing, they, they go off somewhere else for, for a long time and they may come back to visit, but they're not there with the elders on a day-by-day -day basis in the community. And some are, but by and large, a lot of people don't necessarily come back with that. And, and it just means that over time, it's slowly fading away. There are fewer yeah. people who are fluent in the languages and fewer people who were there on a daily basis interacting and seeing that. So the elders were just saying, like, look, this stuff is starting to, to fade a bit. We, we want this documented and then turn into educational curricula for the kids. And, you know, we're happy to share this with the public as well. So that's been the main motivation behind it. And then when it came time to do the book and the publisher said, well, we can pick six. And said, all right, well, there's six elders in particular that we've done a lot of work uh, with, but they've actually been co-authors on the scientific research we published. They're actually named authors on those publications. 
And these were the six that I chose. And, you know, it was choosing those six was pretty easy, but I felt bad because I wanted to include a lot more. My initial draft of the book had 98 elders <laughs> on the inside cover. The publisher was like, I, I don't know we can do that. You know, we've got yeah. space, you know, limitations. So, you know, that's, that's how all that came about. But, you know, I've, I've been working for elders around the world and, and, and a lot of places in the book, it's been work that other communities have done. You know, Rangi Matamu is a Maori astronomer in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and his book, um, Matariki, um, which I've got here, I pulled some stuff out of that, you know, with his permission, of course, and talked about him and where it came yeah. from. And the same with um, Annette Lee is a Lakota astrophysicist in Minnesota and other colleagues around the world, you know. So it's, there's a bit of stuff in there, a fair bit of stuff from what's been done elsewhere in the world. But I tied it in with the work that I've been doing in Australia and the places I've worked around the world. But it's more to show that um, this idea of astronomy as a science is not confined to Western ways of thinking. It's not, you know, Western science isn't the only one. And that a lot of the things that we think of as Western science were actually known by First Peoples a long time ago. And even some of those discoveries were made by First Peoples a long time ago. And it's not really meant to sort of trash Western science or to pit them against each other as a who's better or who's worse sort of situation. But just for a scientist to recognize that, you know, there's other systems of knowledge that we can learn from. And there's a lot of collaborations that can happen when we, you know, stop thinking of these systems as being less than Western science. And we put them on an equal platform. They're not the same, but there's an overlapping area where they are quite similar. And the overlapping areas where they are the same. It's like a Venn diagram. It's not a perfect circle, but they're not totally separate. There is overlap. And yeah. that overlap area is what this book is all about. I thought it was fascinating they didn't have telescopes obviously it was all done with the naked eye and and to preserve these observations over so many generations and and to have it in so much detail that is actually an accomplishment that is underrated when people think about it but i mean we're talking about really detailed observations they what was it they worked out sunspots eclipses all that and 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 all with the naked eye and then all to preserve all that knowledge early that's actually amazing how much has been lost do, do you have an idea or do you have a feeling do you talk to the elders about that how much loss is there and, and, and how does that work i mean there's a lot of information that has to be kept alive for a long time how exactly do they achieve that and did they achieve it i mean it's amazing it's huge that's a really tricky question i think a lot of the elders and communities that i've worked for would say that it isn't gone, it's just sleeping. Um, obviously, there are places where the languages have been almost completely decimated. And, and all the knowledge is, is within the language. So if you eradicate the language, you eradicate the knowledge. Well, not completely. You know, you can still, there's still fair bits of the knowledge that can be translated into English or passed down. They don't maintain their original form meaning or value necessarily, I guess, I'm not sure if that's the right word to use for it, but you know, they're, they're obviously impacted. And in some places, if you look at Tasmania, you know, the early colonists like George Augustus Robinson and others who were there, they did write a little bit about astronomy in Tasmania, but not that much. 
and we've managed to go back and try to piece together all these fragments from the historical records. Yeah. We know that some elders still pass knowledge down, but that that almost near decimation of Tasmanian culture and people and language was quite severe. So that's a, an area where you can see what we have now. You know there was a wealth of that beforehand, because even the early colonists said there was. Yeah. Yeah. You know there's a lot that's been lost there. I don't know if we're ever going to get all that back. I, I hate thinking that or even considering that, but it is a reality. Um, you know, so we're, we're trying to work as best we can to pull whatever we can, try to reconstruct as much as possible. And that's where some of the communities have, have asked me and, and my colleagues to come in and say, well, look, some of the elders have different bits of knowledge about that. You know, we've been heavily impacted by colonization, stolen generations, all these things have really fragmented things. And in some cases, the elders are going back and looking at the old archival records that were written by non-Indigenous people to fill in these gaps. And in many cases, and I've seen it happen, um, the knowledge that was recorded by early colonists, anthropologists, whatever, was inaccurate because a lot of them didn't have a working knowledge of astronomy. They would conflate terms and misidentify things. And, mm. and I've seen elders talking about something and I'm like, you know, nothing against the elder. Something doesn't seem right there. When I asked them about it, they, they said, yeah, well, we got this from that, you know, oh, okay. I had this bit of knowledge, but there was, there was a gap, but I filled that gap in with what I saw written in, you know, this book in the 1880s or whatever it was. Yeah. And I'm going back, I'm like, okay, well, I can see what happened because this person, this anthropologist who wrote it down, got these parts of that wrong. So that's been good because we've been able to help the elders, you know, the best we can um, find, you know, fill those gaps properly. Now, you know, a lot of places around the, the, the knowledge is still quite strong, um, but elders are dying. I mean, people die, you know, people pass on and whenever an elder dies, it's like a library dies. And, you know, there are concerns when, you know, certain elders, I, I worked with one in the book, John Barso. Um, I'm not even sure if he was considered an elder. He was definitely a knowledge holder. He was only in his early 50s, yeah, early to mid 50s. And everybody kept saying, go talk to John Barso. And I sat with him only once for a couple of hours. But the amount of star knowledge that he shared and the depth of that was gobsmacking. I mean, he knew the stars. Wow. Um, really detailed, you know, really going into it. And I was just blown away. Because um, I've sat with several elders and they say, oh, we, we don't know much about astronomy. But I think they were thinking of astronomy like astrophysics. They didn't yeah, know exactly. They yeah. like, I was like, no, no, it's just about anything about the sun, moon, and stars. And through a conversation, I'm like, oh, that's what you mean. And then, you know, <laughs> <laughs> over years, we've recorded tons and tons of stuff, you know. So that's been that process. And then, and then he, we kept arranging to meet up again because it's expensive to go and stay in the Torres Strait. And being an academic, you don't have a lot of time to go off and do that kind of field work. Of course, yeah. long. So I don't even get to spend a couple, maybe three weeks at a time up there if I'm lucky. And, you know, people have lives. They can't just drop everything and go talk to some academic about the stars, even if they wanted to, you know. So we kept trying to meet up again. And, you know, he had some health problems. So he had to fly back to Cairns or Townsville to be able to go to the hospital. And just kept missing each other. And then, yeah, early 2018, I got a call from Uncle Alo Tapim, who's one of the co-authoring elders, saying, you know, John, John passed away. 
um, only in his 50s, and we never got the chance to meet up again. And when we met, it was during the day, it was a hot afternoon. <laughs> you know, we were in the shade of his his house on his front patio area, or his back yeah. patio, facing yeah. the city. And he was going to take me outside and point to the stars because we're talking about this, but he actually. He's telling me the Merriam names of the stars, but he didn't know the Western counterpart names to it. So it was like, well, we need to meet up at night so you can point them out to me. Because some of them I didn't quite, I could kind of infer what I thought he meant. Yeah. But I didn't know for certain, but that just never happened. So it's like those experiences can really tell you, you know, in some cases that knowledge, it is being lost um, or it's going to be sleeping for a very long time, you know, and that's why yeah. this work that we're doing is so important. I couldn't agree more. And I encourage everyone to, to get your book, The First Astronomers, have a read on top of it, which I love all the royalties from it. Don't go to you. They go to charities supporting First Nations projects and people in astronomy, which is fantastic. I thank you so much for your time, Dwayne. And it was an absolute pleasure. And I hope we can talk again soon. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Dwayne Hamaker. If you have any questions or comments, write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. Also, please leave us a review and like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening. Hear you next time.